0: Encore episode 30 Pharmaceutical Contracting, PBMs, Pharmacies, Employers, and the latest HHS rebate proposal. Earlier, I spoke with AJ Loy Akino from Capital RX.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: In November 2020, there was an executive order entitled, air quotes here, lowering prices for patients by eliminating kickbacks to middlemen. And we had HHS Secretary Alex Azar and the HHS Office of Inspector General finalizing a regulation to eliminate the current system of drug rebates in MedD. And what they were trying to do is create incentives to reduce out-of-pocket spending on prescription drugs by delivering discounts directly at the pharmacy counter to patients. Those discounts delivered at the pharmacy counter, not insignificant. In 2019, Part D rebates totaled $39.8 billion. The new rule stipulates that federal spending can't be increased as a result of this action, but in summary, it's pretty much a reboot of the same ruling from earlier, last year. Here's a couple of points The rule is only for Medicare, Med D, Medicaid, and commercial aren't included. But there's a but and we get into that in this episode. Also, the start date for this ruling is one one if it continues to stand in the new administration, which is a big if. What was at stake the first time this role was drawn up by HHS and is likely still at stake is the implementation flowchart. Like who exactly is involved in adjudicating these, you know, in quotes, potential discounts for patients at the pharmacy counter. Since any middleman who gets themselves involved in anything takes a buck, there is a massive land grab if you think about it, that if any middleman can grab a buck, this could be a lot of money. So the first time this HHS proposal was presented in 2019, I talked to A.J. Loy Akino, who's the CEO over at Capital Rx. I have to say, I was a little over cocky relative to how well I really understood the hidden machinations behind Pharmacy Rx's being adjudicated. And A.J. does an amazing job explaining it. This is incredibly relevant as we contemplate, you know, potentially who gets a piece of the action moving forward. But regardless of, in some respects, what happens with this HHS role, I found it interesting and valuable to understand what exactly happens in the dark, messy middle, maybe underbelly of a pharmacy adjudication. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, AJ.
1: Great to be here.
0: The HHS plan to remove the safe harbor from the rebates that pharma is currently paying to PBMs to buy their way onto formularies. The intention, obviously, of this endeavor, this proposal, is to make the transaction more transparent.
1: Yeah, I think just quick background. You know, in February of 19, you know, obviously HHS came out and said, We'd like to eliminate the anti-kickback statue, you know, better known as the safe harbor for payments to Medicare, Medicaid. And this obviously led to confusion and what I call kind of the greatest financial land rush, if you will, in the pharmacy supply chain. It, you know, will quite possibly become, you know, one of the greatest financial windfalls for whomever claims control of this process. And we could talk about that some more.
0: Yes, let's do so. So if the rebates that pharma pays to PBMs are no longer going to be allowed, this is how the process is going to work. What does that flowchart look like?
1: First, starting from where we are, which is if you think about it today, the PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, are negotiating directly with the pharmaceutical manufacturers for rebate dollars. What's being proposed is we're changing the term rebate to a chargeback. Today, the PBM is collecting this money from the manufacturer. But what's being suggested is instead of it being post adjudication, you know, now it's going to happen at the point of sale. And at the point of sale, you have a pharmacy that suddenly is put in the middle of all of this. The pharmacy, you're going to buy it, the drug, quite possibly at the higher price. And then Once the transaction happens, that it could be 30 days or 60 days or 180 days, a payment will come to the retailer to make them whole, if you will, to make up the difference between what the lower price is that's now being made available to the patient and what they actually acquired the drug for, the acquisition cost.
0: So for 60 to 90 days, then we've got a, if it's an independent pharmacy, obviously, I mean, even if it's probably a big pharmacy, this is material. For however long the payment takes to come through, that pharmacy has paid out money or give paid out, a, given out a product that they paid yeah. for. The money that they collected is less than the cost of the product they distributed. So from a cash flow perspective, this matters.
1: Yes, it could. And I think to compare it to something that exists today, if I were to kind of put my old coupon manufacturer hat on when I used to work and administrate in the couponing side of the business, when we look at the coupon process, the pharmacists used to and still do, the independents in particular, say, you know, I've run 500 of your coupons. (laughs) When am I going to be paid? And if it's taking $100 or $50 off, you know these are several thousand dollars, tens of thousands of dollars that they could be accumulating. And let's just think about this, and this is just kind of a broad estimate. If coupons are used on 20, 25% of transactions at the register, the point of sale at retail, think about the chargeback process. It's gonna be on all brand drugs, pretty much. So now you've got 100% coupons (laughs) effectively.
0: Who's paying that chargeback? Is that the pharma company that now has to figure out how to pay? I don't know how many pharmacies there are in the United States, but they have to have a vendor agreement with every single pharmacy or who's sitting in the middle there?
1: Well, I think that's kind of the interesting part of solving for this proposal, which is who does sit in the middle. And I go back to this becoming a very significant moment in pharmacy supply chain industry because Whoever ultimately chairs this is going to be in control of billions of dollars. And when billions of dollars are flowing through someone, obviously they're going to take a fee for obviously administrating that service. And so who is in charge of this payment workflow? So one suggestion is the PBMs themselves. Large PVMs, CVS, Cigna Express Scripts, United Optum, obviously have these relationships and already have a payment workflow in place with pharmacies, since obviously they need to reimburse the pharmacies for the payer paid portion or employer paid portion of transactions. So they already have a workflow in place. They could be still the administrator (laughs) of this process, which is kind of interesting. The other options are around, quote unquote, third party entrance. One entrance might be Wholesalers, wholesalers like McKesson, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal, their role in this today is they're supplying the pharmacies, that they have relationships with the retailers. And since they're selling the drug at a a whack or wholesale acquisition cost, then They would be the best party to remit the payments. So collect from pharma and pay the pharmacy. And maybe if they were willing to go a little bit at risk for a fee, it could accelerate that payment workflow back to the end pharmacy. Another option is the switch. People always ask me what what is a switch? You know, think of like an old movie where you see an an operator literally patching a line from one call to another. That's kind of the role of a switch. It's, it's rather antiquated. Probably no need for it in the kind of modern internet, but it plays a significant role. What's interesting is I mentioned before that the wholesalers are possible third-party solutions for this. Well, who controls the switches in the United States? It's McKesson. McKesson, probably through their Relay Health product, is, I would have to estimate, 80% of all Prescription transactions and then Change Health, which is partially owned by McKesson, last I checked, is the other 20% effectively. There's a couple independents out there, but they don't really have meaningful market share. But it's important to look at and why the switch? Well, the switch is in between these transactions. So they're already playing an, an integral role, the switch in specific transactions, be it Medicare, or commercial transactions, with couponing even. So they have visibility to the patient pay and the plan pay. So they could easily, obviously, create the dynamic chargeback. And we'll we'll get to that in a minute because there's some issues with this whole chargeback philosophy. Another entrant that could be thought of is a bank. Fintech might become involved. You know, where there's money, there's a bank. Then maybe a bank would like to play that role.
0: Yeah. So, okay. so we've got four potential ways that the HHS proposal could be implemented.
1: And to be fair, it could be a fifth or a sixth. And you're going to say, well, wait, who could that be? It could be a government contractor. PwC could be like, hey, I do work for the government. Maybe you need a good firm that could, you know, cover this or an Accenture. Or is it like a a Lockheed Boeing? You know, I'm a defense contractor. And you know what? I should be. You never you never know. But when there are tens of billions of dollars of money, it is enormous. If I had to put a number on the chargeback, it's 150 billion plus of money every year. And it's growing. And so the question becomes, who's in charge of it? Well, that would be probably one of the single largest contracts in history.
0: Yeah, so let's recap the potential players in the land rush that probably just initiated as we consider who is going to have the ability to play the role of paying pharmacies. Because everybody that's involved takes a dollar in the middle. That's one of the issues that we have. So when you're talking about dollars of this volume, even if somebody takes a fraction of a percentage, it's a ton of money. Okay, so first contender, we've got PBMs themselves. Yep. A second contender is we've got the wholesalers. Mm-hmm. Uh, third contender is the switches, and mm-hmm. you know, just sidebar, uh, McKesson controls the majority of switches, and they also are a wholesaler. So I would like to see the increase in their lobbying budget these days. <laughs> um, number four, we've got banks, fintech, you know, somebody who's outside in quotes, air quotes, the industry who who starts to step in and takes over, and then fifth, we've got potentially a government contractor. So let me just ask you this, AJ, based on your experience, at this juncture, the HHS proposal only pertains to uh, CMS paid Mm -hmm. transactions. What's the likelihood that this is going to spill over into commercial?
1: I think it's almost a certainty because it's very difficult to have a two system process. I mean, think about how complex supply chain is already. If suddenly you're, let's just say, a retail pharmacy is, I have one pricing schedule for Medicare, Medicaid purchasing. I have another schedule for commercial, even PBMs. It just becomes extremely cumbersome. I definitely see it moving very quickly because if these large entities are going to invest in processes to Administrate the chargeback. I genuinely believe that it's going to move to both commercial as well as Medicare, Medicaid. We're
0: talking about option one, in which basically we just stick with the PBMs to, is the correct term, adjudicate the chargeback. Mm-hmm. So let's just say that PBMs remain the main player here. PBMs make money in a whole bunch of different ways besides just taking rebates from pharmaceutical manufacturers. Do you want to talk a little bit about how, if they're crafty, as you say, which they are, to expand their control under this Mm -hmm. proposal.
1: If you think about the three largest PBMs, CVS, Cigna Express Scripts, and United, what they all have in common is they're publicly traded and represent 78 to 80% of all prescription transactions in the U.S., so it's effectively an oligopoly. When you look at the big three, what you have to remember is they have no real more market share to attain. It's not as if like, well, I could expand globally. This is really a U.S. healthcare system issue. So when we're just looking at pharmacy benefit managers, you know, the only way at this point that they can kind of make Wall Street happy is, if you think about it, is to meet or exceed earnings. So there's no way they can go backwards. They can't suddenly say, hey, we were enjoying 50, 60, 70% of our earnings came from rebate spread and admin fees and price protection. You know what? Let's just forget all that and just move forward, they would be obviously punished by Wall Street. So I think back to their motivation, I genuinely believe that the PBMs are going to do everything in their power to maintain the status quo of revenue. It's funny, if someone asked me, the only way to fix this hidden revenue stream between PBMs and manufacturers, I'd make it illegal for PBMs to take a single dollar from a manufacturer. I mean, that just settles it once and for all. You just can't take any money from manufacturers because the problem is they might say, you know what, let's just say the switch controls it. The PBM says, you know, I'm doing some work with you. We're consulting on something. I think you owe me some money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm doing a clinical access study. I think you owe me some money. It's very difficult if you always have a hand in the pocket of the manufacturers. The PBM makes it very difficult. I think we need a much more transparent system. And you know what I'm fearful of is a lot of these systems don't really address for what I would say full transparency. And you know, let's just get an example of this. Someone says, "Well, if the chargeback is at the point of sale and the patient's getting it, you know, isn't it clear as day?" And I go, "Well, no, because it's not standardized." So you could have two different patients or employers in a plan And they can have two different chargebacks based upon the dynamics of their plan, the size, different lines of business. And so because there's this variability, where there's variability, there's variable profitability. And so I think that the quote-unquote chargeback system, although it has merit, and I think it's trying to help the patient, the real murk here is who has control over the money. And I think if you're a PBM you kind of have a different kind of charter. The, the PBM should be making decisions based upon efficacy and outcome and lower net cost. And once you have your hand in the bucket or the pocket of pharma, these kind of decision processes become blurry.
0: What variability also does is it makes it really tough to audit. Because if I'm an employer and I just get a spreadsheet that says, OK, well, this is how much chargebacks or whatever your employees got. There's no baseline, so there's nothing to compare it to. So you don't know what good looks like.
1: You've hit on something that's very important that we should remember here. It's not just the audit. It's not just the variabilities. If it drifts to the commercial side, what's going to happen, a lot of employers have not even thought about what I'm about to say, is it's going to nullify every employer PBM contract, because almost every PBM contract has in it a clause that says if there's any regulatory change, then my rebates go out the window. And now you're talking about variability on a whole different dimension, which is who's to tell me what I am due and what is fair. You know, someone will say, well, the consultants will help with this process or, you know, the PBMs will be fair. And I'm going to say, well, unfortunately, that's not historically going to be a beneficial moment in history
0: question about that because would the employer be receiving anything at that juncture from the PBM because the benefit should allegedly be going to the employees? How do you know that the chargeback that patients are getting, be it commercial or government, how do you know that, you know, if I'm a patient, how am I supposed to know that I got the correct amount? And then like, who's checking that? Like, is that part of the role of this intermediary?
1: Well, that's just it. You know, it's the classic Fox watching the hen house where if it's the PBM and they control the plan, does that seem like a good idea? Maybe. Uh, maybe not. Even the wholesalers, they are the ones that are supplying the drugs. And again, they have views into this process as well. And, you know, as i blake like to point out, the switch is controlled by one of the wholesalers. So, I mean, the three most likely solutions roll back to an oligopoly, the PBMs, a monopoly, the switch, or an oligopoly, the wholesalers. They really aren't great options at the end of the day, and they all come with their own kind of self-interest.
0: So the current relationship between pharma and PBMs is that they pay to play. And maybe I'm saying that with a very broad stroke. But is that still under any of these models? How possible is that? So if I'm a pharmaceutical company and I have a Me Too product or I have a product that doesn't really necessarily have demonstrable efficacy, but I've got big pockets and I want to pay to get on a PBMs formulary, is that still possible?
1: You know, it's difficult to understand that fully. So you can make an argument that because PBMs are so close to the end payers, that they'll always have influence. And where you have influence, you can charge for that influence. So in one way or another, there will still be a formulary in the near term, I believe. You know, as far as, you know, do you ever get away from it? Do you ever get away from pay to play economics on a formulary? The answer is maybe. And I hate to say that because a lot of things have to fall into place. And it's not just the PBM industry, it's the consulting industry. I say sometimes that there are consulting groups out there that maintain the status quo of pay-to-play economics because you're looking at a rate card and you want the largest rebates and the largest discounts. And no one's thinking true lower net costs that if I consider a drug like Embril and it may have a lower discount and a lower rebate, and I look at a drug like Humera, which may have higher discount, higher rebate, you would think, oh, it's a better option. But the true lower net cost would be Embril. So why isn't it on a formulary or why isn't it being utilized more as kind of a first-line defense is because it doesn't show up well in a spreadsheet. Because a PBM wants to say, hey, I've got this huge specialty rebate or huge brand rebate. And obviously, the consultant or broker wants to sell that. And so there's another party in here that's not really being discussed. And it's how do the consultants and brokers kind of react to this, which is will it shake up the industry and we're going to move to true lower net cost and think about efficacy and outcome more and more value driven approaches? Or is it still going to be a rate card shootout, which manifests and maintains this pay to play economics?
0: If I'm a pharma company right now, is it business as usual for me? Can I still rely, you know, as pay for play, whatever, whether it's chargebacks or administrative fees or whatever you call it, it's still for the near future going to be enforced that, yeah, whatever business as usual for me.
1: I just see right now they're going to, on the surface at least, be business as usual. There might be a skunk works in the middle of the pharma groups are saying, how do we work around this? And I hope they do. I hope pharma engages with more small mid-market PBMs like myself, because I think we can do something very unique. I hope that pharma becomes bold kind of reclaims some of their leadership position in the supply chain.
0: This is how I'm distilling down what you have just said. If I'm a pharma company, there might be some downside risk here of basically thinking that I'm going to rely on pay for play with the big three PBMs heretofore. So not revising how I'm like understanding at a full level what the value is of my product, for example, to patients or continuing to develop a me too and hoping that they're going to have a super rebate strategy in order to bring it to market. There might be exposure in in that from a downside. But I think what you're also saying is by assuming that business will be status quo, they're also foregoing a potential upside to take advantage of and maybe, as you say, take a leadership role in the marketplace toward purveyors that are more transparent and can more accurately represent the value of their products. Agreed. If you think about it, who's writing the checks at the end of the day? It's
1: the pharmaceutical manufacturers. So if you're writing the check, you know, I think you have to make some thoughtful bets. Yeah, obviously, you have to engage with the big three and continue down that path. But I think you need to make side bets with the small mid market. I, I don't think we should have a U.S. healthcare system and pharmacy benefits in which people make money from hiding transactions or taxes.
0: So if I'm an employer, what questions should I be asking right now of the brokers or consultants or whoever is helping me?
1: It's interesting. It's very difficult to ask a question right now because I think the first thing is, is this program, this proposed rule to eliminate safe harbor, is it going to cascade into the commercial market? But then the question becomes, well, what am I asking as an employer? We don't know yet. I think what employers should be advocating for and if they have access to regulatory officials or legislators, they should be asking for more transparency and they should ask for better audit rights and more visibility into the process. Because if you think about it, the person who's paying the bill here is the patient and the employers and states and the federal government. They should be asking, I think, more questions. I feel like if we had to go through the you know, thousands of comments that you know, were in response to this proposal, vast majority of them are coming from entities in the supply chain. I bet very few were coming from employer groups. At least the ones I work with would even know how to be part of the response process. So I think it's right now, the questions should be more directed to the people that have the ability to create regulatory oversight. And I think, put pressure on the broker consultant as to what this means for them going forward, because it is overlooked, these relationships.
0: It definitely seems like the good intentions of the HHS proposal, when tossed into the stew of profit-seeking entities who are very smart, they're going to figure out a way to take a buck. If what we're controlling here is the process and we're micromanaging the process, There's always a loophole in the process, somehow or another. Unless we figure out how to control the end game or we've got market forces that control what's going on in the middle. I don't know. What's your optimism level here that anything is going to fundamentally change?
1: Let's look at the good. I think it is an overdue dialogue and discussion. So I applaud HHS for starting it. And I think their intention back to the primary goal was was noble in the sense that it's trying to help the patient. The problem is is how we implement it, and it because it is this huge pot of gold, everybody wants to control it, or everyone wants access to it. Because to your point, and to my point, is whenever you administrate anything, you have the ability to tax the system, and obfuscate or create unnecessary opacity and complexity to maintain higher profit levels. So. I think my optimism is around, I would hope, the employers asking more questions and trying to put more pressure back on the people that will make these decisions, regulatory officials, uh, legislators. I think it's important because if just left to these kind of three different groups to decide the outcome on their own, I think we're pretty much going to have a very similar system to where we're coming from. In fact, if you look at the workflows and you look at the flowcharts, it's more convoluted and more complex where it is today.
0: There's a growing group of, dare I say, middle people who are transparent and who are not taking hidden fees. And like that's kind of the value proposition that's being offered. Do you want to talk a little bit about this kind of emerging do I want to say, I, maybe I'm optimistically saying a market force? How do all these pieces fit together?
1: Higher cost sharing puts a burden on the patient. And a lot of employers never get to look at abandonment and adherence curves and the data around that. Because when a patient abandons, they don't really see it or talk about it with their PBM. In fact, it's not even billed. It's it's a reversal. It's, a, it's noise in the background. But what they're missing is that patient now isn't taking their prescription. Is that going to be higher drug costs? Is that going to be more absenteeism? And there's obviously hundreds of journals that will say yes. But we don't look at it that way. We just look, hey, we won. We drove down pharmacy costs. (laughs) And oh, you know, yeah, sorry, you pay a little bit more, but it makes you a better consumer. And I agree to that to some level. Yes, you're a better consumer, but you still have to be able to afford your medication. You can't be like, hey, if you want your drug, it's $600, and eventually you'll get out of this hole and your deductible and you'll be fine. But the average American, when they're confronted with a $100 deductible or copayment, they're doing my cell phone bill, my gas bill, my car payment, whatever it may be. And so these other things, unfortunately, tend to take priority over your medication, which is why we see adherence rates in employer plans in the 70s, you know, which is effectively saying you got 20 days out of 30 days of medication and that's probably not a good place for the US healthcare system to be. You know, I think the system is overly complex, it's overly opaque. And, and the reason for that is spread pricing dominates the PBM industry. And you can't see that mechanism because PBMs that have traditional pricing show up and say, hey, it's free, my service. Well, nothing's free in life, but they say it's free, there's no cost. I just take a little bit between the pharmacy and you and the manufacturer, don't worry about it. Well, I think that would be a fine process if you could see the spread. The thing that I kind of equate it to is, once upon a time, the stock exchange. If you were to trade a stock, $1,000 of stock, you could pay 50 to $100 in commission. And then a company came around and said, "Hey, I'm going to do this for 1995," and everybody laughed at it and said, "No, no one wants that." But now it's the standard because you took a very complex and opaque process and you simplified it and made it accessible, and you actually created an entire generation of people that would trade stock that would never purchase stock directly because it became more accessible. And I feel like the prescription benefit industry, one of the reasons why our company exists and why we founded Capital RX was because. When I was on the audit side and when I was on the procurement side, everything kind of bothered me about the system itself, that we did a great job on the procurement and audit side. There was no doubt about that. But what bothered me was about 70 to 80 percent of a PBM's revenue wasn't even contemplated in the four corners of an employer's agreement anymore. And with that level of inefficiency, how do we get at that? How do we help expose a lot of this kind of waste and inefficiency and self-interest? So we call our process a, we call clearinghouse model, where you have a counterparty that can see the transaction. So to say, hey, I get 100% of the rebates and I give it to you, I'll show you the transaction workflow. If we're paying back to a retailer, I'll show you the payments back to that workflow as well, that there's nothing burdening the process. And I think that's a great place to start Because if you're not expending your time trying to manipulate or kind of maintain higher revenue through spread, you can now focus your efforts and resources on better service, better outcome, innovation, looking at ways to get back to the prior statement, which is, is this the right thing for a patient to have $100, $200 copay? The answer is no, but I need to be able to demonstrate that through data and analytics back to the employer and educate them. And really what we should be focusing on is what are we solving for? Are you solving for better access, outcome, service, or is it price? But not just price and discount, but lower net cost.
0: Here's my concern as an employer and, and thinking of all the other employers that are out there. It's a really bad thing when you can't trust someone who you need to be working in your best interest, who has demonstrated repeatedly that they're not. Like that just it just sits really wrong with me and makes me very uncomfortable.
1: Well, I think there's a misalignment and the misalignment occurred when we kind of got to the end of the M&A PBM bubble there's probably been 30 major M&A deals over the last 25 years. And in the end, we've basically created this oligopoly of three entities that control 80% of the transactions. And that you know, last 20% are blues plans, regional carriers, and independent PBMs like myself. So the days of growing real market share is kind of at an end. And so that misalignment is around... I need to continue to grow earnings, but every time I grow earnings, it's coming out of the employer's pocket. And, you know, that's that's a tough, you know, process to digest. You know, there is mistrust, right, wrong or indifferent. I think the mistrust is because it's overly complex, but the industry likes complexity because it kind of hides the revenue stream.
0: But Harry S. Truman said, if you can't convince them, confuse them. (laughs) (laughs) Talk a little bit about Capital Rx, AJ. What do you have going on over there?
1: We are a PVM based out of New York City. You know, we're called Capital RX one because we do have this clearinghouse model, which is fully transparent and provides all parties visibility to the payment workflow. The other reason why we're called Capital RX is because we believe in human capital is the most important asset for any company. And what we try and focus on is we obviously already sit on the pharmacy data and then we also ingest the medical data and we also ask for salary payroll data, and sick days. And the reason why is it helps our clinical team not just create more effective programs back to asking a question and understanding your client, but we can track the results. So a great example of this, I would say, is diabetic population. Diabetic population is typically a top 10 cost category for every employer in the United States. Unfortunately, most diabetics typically sit in the high 60s from an adherence rate, which is pretty bad. So we may do something that's contrary to the industry, where the industry is racing to the bottom to say more deductibles, more coinsurance, higher rebates. We'll say, I wanna do something kind of different here. I wanna get that population of diabetics to a 95% adherence rate. And people will be like, well, wait a second. Isn't that gonna cost us more money, HA? And I would say, yeah, it's probably gonna cost you four or 5% to your top end. And at that point, most HR directors might pass out. Um, But what you want to say is, well, let's look at this for a second. Three to four times the cost of pharmacy benefit is the medical cost. And we think by doing this, we're going to reduce chances of comorbidity, transference to higher disease states, as well as less episodic visits to the ER, et cetera, that are very costly. And we don't have to make that big of a change because this is three to four times the size of the pharmacy benefit. But let's just say we don't see it in there. The real benefit is when we start tracking sick days which is if I could just carve back a quarter of a sick day, suddenly this program pays for itself three to one. And the reason for that, and people forget this all the time, is your salary cost is 50 to 60 times the cost of the pharmacy benefit. And really, what are we trying to solve for? Are we just trying to solve for how to reduce this bucket or this silo by itself, pharmacy benefits, or are we truly trying to make the right decisions for our employees and help them genuinely become healthier, and more effective in the workforce. I mean, I'll make a a broad bet to anyone who listens to your broadcast. I will bet a healthier company outperforms an unhealthy company any day of the week.
0: Yeah, I don't know how that cannot be true, honestly. I think it's really easy to get sucked into marketing that fixates on a certain factor in an equation, but doesn't take a look at what the sum total of the equation is. Like you get some really weird, perverse incentives that don't ultimately uh, serve the end game very well. They increase one number at the expense of another. And at the end of the day, you wind up not improving anything.
1: Agreed. A great example of this, again, from an employer lens that employers may not even know this exists or trust funds where they are confronted with these rate card sheets and they say, I've got I've got great pricing, even though there's no price on there. They're all kind of these bucketed discounts and rebates. But What I always like to point out when I do an employer uh, kind of presentation is I say, let's use something that we can all relate to. What's the price of gasoline in the United States? Someone might say $3 and some change depending upon which state you're in. Might be more, might be a little bit less, but there's a number. When I say, what's the price of amoxicillin, the room becomes very quiet, even with consultants in it. And the reason why if you look at the list price the awp for amoxicillin goes from seven dollars to nine dollars and there shouldn't be much variability in a price at this point but what's fascinating is if you start looking at mac list and even employer prices within the same pvm you could have plus or minus 40 percent 50 percent on that drug on the same day the classic example of two employees in the same chain pay two different prices and you know the question is why And it's because what's so unique about the U.S. pharmacy benefit system, it's the only industry I know where the pharmacy buys its inventory and a third party tells them the price. makes no sense whatsoever.
0: Yeah, which might, you know, given the spread, have little bearing on what the drug actually costs. AJ Loy Akino, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today.
1: No, thank you so much, Stacey.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com.